Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So welcome to the History of the Heavyweight Championship of the World, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sports history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions, and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I started in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Well, let, let him do the talking. He does enough for both of us. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing. Oh, well, I've been up and down a number of times. It's all here. Every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1963. In 1963, Sonny Liston was the heavyweight champion of the world and still desperately searching for respect and recognition. There was talk of a rematch with Floyd Patterson. There had been a rematch clause in the contract for their first fight and amazingly, it looked like happening. In September 1962, Liston had knocked out Patterson in just 126 seconds. A rematch seemed pointless. However, Liston had beaten all of the contenders on his way to the title. There was only Cassius Clay left, and he was just 21 and had fought just 16 times at the start of the year. Clay was not shy, never shy, about listing his talents. Yeah, I've had 180 amateur fights, world Olympic gold medal winning in Rome, Italy, two-time United States Golden Glove champion, two-time United States AAU champion, Pan American champion, Diamond Belt champion, uh, a world soccer rink and heavyweight, and I'm as pretty as you and you're not a fighter. <laughs> the rematch was set for Miami in April, but Liston injured his knee hitting a golf ball, one of heavyweight boxing's greatest excuses. A June date for Las Vegas was then scrapped when Patterson had an operation to remove a callus from his hand. It was set for the new and gleaming convention centre in Las Vegas for July. Everybody, and especially the Vegas bookies, knew what was going to happen. People gathered in the heat, shaking their heads at the stupidity of the fight. It was the first heavyweight title fight to take place in Las Vegas, and it made no difference that a massacre was predicted. It would sell and make the city and the men that ran it a lot of money. That is all Vegas and boxing is ever about, making a lot of money. Liston trained and was his surly self and spent his evenings losing the best part of $20,000 at the craps tables in the Thunderbird Hotel. He sat in isolation, his pork pie hat perched on his head and his eyes seldom leaving the table. He was a malevolent force, silent and lonely under a zillion neon lights and without a friend in a place packed with laughter. It seems the press, scared to talk to him or approach him when he was gambling, stood off, waiting for something, anything to happen. He was often at the table until 1am, just sunny, losing money in the Thunderbird. One night, Clay showed. He kept his distance, calling Liston an ugly bear, 
A crowd started to gather and Clay moved closer. Liston was on a losing streak and Clay was taunting the champion about both his gambling and his boxing skills. The big ugly bear can't even shoot craps, Clay screamed. Clay eventually got close, real close, and that is when Liston finally looked up. The press had also got close, close enough to hear Liston tell Clay, Listen, if you don't get out of here in 10 seconds, I'm going to pull that big tongue out of your mouth and stick it up your... I think you know the rest of that. Clay shifted and quick. There is a version of this story where Liston pulls his jacket back to reveal a pistol. It could be true, probably is. Clay still attended Liston's public workouts, heckling from the back, a safe distance. Clay was no fool. Patterson tried to put on a brave face for the fight, tried to believe what nobody believed, that he could win. In the end, he settled on talking about Liston's known flaws, his character. I pity Liston, Patterson said. He hates too much and too hard. George Whiting of the Evening Standard, the doyen of Fleet Street's travelling pack of boxing scribes, was in Las Vegas and not impressed by what he glimpsed at a Patterson session. On what we have been permitted to see in the ornate training camps here, the mournful Patterson's face has been provided with no new ramparts. In other words, it would end the same way. On the night, just under 8,000 paid to watch. It's possible they were not disappointed. In the ring before the bell, Clay was introduced to the public. He went and shook Patterson's hand and then, pretending he was scared, he jumped from the ring rather than shake Liston's hand. The crowd lapped it up. It was pure pantomime. But Clay's people had already been talking to Liston's people. That fight was getting made and any extra sparkle would only make it a bigger event. The unnecessary rematch started. Liston never took a punch. Patterson threw five, missed with four. After 50 seconds, Patterson was down for the first time. After 99 seconds, he was down again. He was hurt, stunned the second time. No heavyweight champion has ever been on the floor more than Floyd Patterson. It is a footnote to his history. Youngest world champion when he won it, first to regain the title, and most knockdowns suffered by a champion in title fights. The end came after another knockdown. The official stoppage was 2 minutes and 10 seconds of round one. Just four seconds slower than the first fight, people booed and chanted Clay's name. Clay ran through a microphone once it was over. Clay running through a microphone was a metaphor for his life at that point. Later that night, he gatecrashed Liston's after-fight party. Liston invited him to come over and sit on his lap. They were selling their inevitable fight, make no mistake. Before dawn, after the fight, Clay declared, If the bum whips me, I'll leave the country. The fight was short, but that suited the Las Vegas power brokers. It meant the public went back to the casino floors quicker to lose their money. The reviews the following morning were understandably brutal. John Gold wrote in the Evening Standard, It was a fight that should have been held in an abattoir, not a sports arena packed with celebrities. In the same paper, the peerless whiting was majestic, as ever, in summary. The summer-clad crowd in Las Vegas, the gamesters, vacationers, shop-front cowboys and party-dressed sheriffs howled their disapproval. After the first fight, Patterson had vanished, wearing a disguise. On this occasion, Patterson did not slip away under the cover of night, wearing a moustache, limping in shame. He arrived at 11am the following morning for the conference to face his other executioners. The press waited. I came here so you wouldn't say I ducked you. 
Nobody should ever doubt Patterson's bravery. Liston certainly never did, but it was his confidence and chin that combined to make him a wreck in big fights, and boy, did he suffer. Liston, at the same conference, was asked whether Floyd should walk away from the sport. Would you tell a bird he can't fly? Liston might have been hard to reach in interviews, but he frequently delivered gold like that. The plan was for Liston to have just a 10-day break and then get back in the gym for a fight on either September the 23rd or 30th of 1963 against Clay in Philadelphia. There was a very real stumbling block behind closed doors. Clay demanded a guarantee of $1.5 million. The counter deal would have guaranteed him $1 million. This was all secret. The figures were massive. Clay, remember, was fighting for short change at that time. The month before, he had been paid $56,000 for fighting Henry Cooper at Wembley Stadium in front of over 30,000 people. Sure, he picked up some extra cash from the Cooper fight, but the total was still a long, long way short of a million bucks. Liston was not impressed. Clay wants too much money. He better just keep going to the graveyard for the bums he keeps fighting. Liston, however, had nowhere to go. No contenders to knock out. Well, he did fly to Britain for a bizarre tour in September. He was paid £500 by the Cray Twins to visit one of their clubs and pose for pictures. Liston would only sign autographs for children and there were many frosty clashes with the press. However, there were also times when he was relaxed, easy and danced in a kilt during a visit to Scotland. He was a divisive character, but he liked Britain. Perhaps Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times summed up how many people viewed Liston's reign. The world of sport now realises that it has gotten Charles Liston to keep. It's like finding a live bat on a string under your Christmas tree. Clay had started the year unbeaten in 16 and finished the year unbeaten in 19. But there were some problems. Some of the glitter was tumbling. First up was former Harlem Globetrotter Charlie Powell. The fight was in Pittsburgh and Powell, who was stunned by the speed, went in three. It was the seventh time in eight fights that Clay had correctly predicted the round. The fight in March against Doug Jones at Madison Square Garden in New York City was serious, very serious. For a start, the garden was sold out. That's 18,732 people all there to watch Clay, even if they were there to watch Clay get beat. Previous heavyweight world champions Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney took up their ringside seats. The fight was beamed to 40 closed-circuit venues in 38 cities. Jones had once been a garden favourite. He could fight. He had a stoppage over Zora Foley, a boxer who had been terribly overlooked by Patterson a few years earlier. In New York, there was a newspaper strike and Clay visited bars, clubs, poetry readings and anywhere to publicise the fight. The fight went in the full 10 rounds and it was close. Two judges had it to Clay by just one round. The ref scored it wider. Jones thought he had won. Clay got his prediction wrong and there were critics. It all seems harsh now because Jones was a good fighter and Clay still a heavyweight baby in some ways. He was only just 21 at the time. Also, it was a really good fight. Perfect for checking a contender's credentials. Arthur Daly of the New York Times, a massive Clay backer, penned a warning. The exceedingly likeable Clay is lousing up his public relations by his boasting, and it's high time he eased off. It never stopped there, it got worse. I'll get locked up for murder if I fight him, warned Liston. Clay's nothing, he's a fake, Jones's manager said. He's not the fighter he says he is, added Jones. 
That's Bish, Bosh and Boogie, by the way. And to add a bit of comedy gold to the assault, Desmond Hackett of the Daily Express wrote that he had just witnessed the beginning of the end of Clay. However, the Ring magazine, once known as the Bible of Boxing, awarded Clay v. Jones its Fight of the Year for 1963. This was a serious accolade, a prestigious declaration. In June, Clay arrived in London for the Cooper fight at Wembley Stadium. He started to sell it as soon as his feet hit the tarmac. He was in fine form. Oh, Henry Cooper's nothing but a tramp. He's a bum. I'm the world's greatest. He must fall in five rounds, but if you talk about me, I'll cut it three. Your prediction about Doug Jones didn't go quite right, though. Well, Doug Jones was a little tougher than I thought he was, but uh, I'll never fight another fella as tough as Doug Jones, not even that big, ugly, bear Sonny Lister. And what after that? President of the United States? Well, no, I'll never shoot for nothing like that, but I'm, I'm the prettiest fight in the ring today. That's my label. It was a declaration of intention, a rejection of any suggestion he should tone things down. The ticket sold. Cooper just smiled his way through questioning, not sure really what to make of the American. This was way before their lifelong friendship. Here's Cooper with Harry Carpenter before the 1963 fight at Wembley Stadium. Well, let, let him do all the talking. He does enough for both of us. <coughs> you wouldn't care to, to predict how long the fight will go? No, oh no, I, I, don't, I never predict a round of a fight. But uh, let's say if the, um, if the fight's as good as he can chant, well, it's going to be a good fight for the public. That's all I can say. What do you think yeah. of Mr. Clay as a boxer? Well, I've only seen him on film. He, oh, he's a, he's a sharp fighter. He's a good fighter. But who do you think's going to win? Cooper. Clay arrived in the ring on the night in a crown and wearing a splendid red gown with Cassius the Greatest on the back. The crowd booed. Clay was used to that. The fight was bloody with Cooper cut. Clay was enjoying himself. Angelo Dundee warned him to calm down. For three completed rounds and two minutes and 55 seconds of the fourth, it was all Clay. And then, bang, Henry's hammer landed and down went Clay. He went down wide-eyed and heavy. The left hook was lethal. There was chaos in the next few seconds. The crowd stood. Cooper was ready. And then under the canopy of hope and mayhem, the bell sounded. Whiting, part of the baying mob inside the stadium, wrote, For four of the noisiest seconds I can remember in a boxing ring, Cassius was on his pants and out of commission. Clay regained his feet, Cooper was denied a finish, and Dundee scrambled into the ring to collect his dazed man. And then a myth was born, a towel of a torn glove and a fictitious long break. Dundee threw Clay onto the stool. He splashed ice water all over him and gave him some smelling salts, now illegal. And then he called the referee over. There was, Dundee explained, a tiny tear in Clay's left glove. Boxers never fight with damaged gloves. They can cause cuts or worsen cuts and damage eyes. Dundee claimed he had noticed the split at the end of the first round and had made a mental note to open it a bit more if his man was in trouble. He told me that one morning in Tokyo over 20 years later. He told it well, I believed him. This is Dundee's shortened version. I helped the split a little, pulled it to the side, no more. The break was only 66 seconds. That is just six extra seconds. Some claim it was 80 seconds, 90 seconds or even several minutes. New gloves were not used. Dundee had bought his man just six crucial seconds. In round five, Clay was savage. Cooper was ruined. Daily of the New York Times wrote, Few men have absorbed such a beating in a short time. Blood was everywhere. People were screaming, Stop the fight! 
Cooper will never know if he could have finished Clay if the left hook had landed 10 seconds earlier in round four. He thinks yes, and he might be right. It was stopped after one minute and 15 seconds of the fifth round. The round Clay had predicted. Cooper's face was shredded. Clay left the ring and he never put the phony theatrical crown back on. He apologised to Cooper for the insults. Cooper and Clay became great friends. The British fans adored Muhammad Ali until his death. A few weeks later, Clay was in Las Vegas for Liston's demolition of Patterson. In November of 1963, Clay went to Denver where Liston lived to sign for the fight. He also went to Liston's house at 1am to scream and holler. The fight was being sold, make no mistake. After signing the contract, there was some food. Chicken was served. Liston watched Clay eating and smiled before offering the deathless remark, you eat like you headed to the electric chair. The champ knew what he was talking about. He had dined with condemned men during his incarceration. The fight was set for February 1964 in Miami. Clay was closing in on destiny and an unforgettable future, and Muhammad Ali was just a few months away. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The 60s was a golden decade for sports writing. And here are some of the men that made it special. The writing geniuses at ringside for some of the greatest fights ever. Here's a taste of the writing in 1963. Nobody was expecting very much from the Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson rematch. Nobody really knows why there was a rematch. On fight night in Las Vegas, there was a high-profile appearance by young Cassius Clay. Nick Toshes, one of Liston's biographers, tells a story of wide-eyed noise and confusion. He said, quote, A photograph taken before the fight that night shows Clay in a chequered sports jacket, eyes bulging, mouth open, and as wide as the Holland Tunnel, screaming his praise for himself while entertained white onlookers smile. And when the fight was over, Clay made his move, Toshes again. The image of Clay rushing for the microphone on that night of another man's victory, so ravenous to hurl himself down the gullet and into the immense maw of mediocrity, it was an image to be reckoned with. Nick could write. George Whiting, the fight writer genius sage of Fleet Street, was there on duty for the London Evening Standard. Whiting was untouchable. Scowling Sonny Liston, ex-convict, has quit horsing around at the crap tables. Melancholy Floyd Patterson, labelled a misfit in his youth, has suspended flying lessons. Tonight they fight for the heavyweight championship of the world in Las Vegas. And men will count them failures if both escape hurt. Whiting knew he was ringside for another massacre. He tried to make sense of the pointless slaughter he had travelled to witness. At all costs, we must preserve the fiction 
that this is a boxing match and not a fight. That bloodletting will be incidental to the aims of the noble art. Until, that is, the lights begin to burn, the chips go down and a timekeeper hits a bell. A fight crowd, like kids at a pantomime, needs a hero to cheer and a villain to scorn. The illiterate Liston was once a hoodlum with convictions for assault. Patterson fought his way out of an approved school. Take your pick. Patterson was over quick and it ended in the first round. Whiting recorded every tiny, nasty detail. A mandatory count of eight holds sway in the state of Nevada. But poor Patterson was in no shape for mathematics and in no condition to hear his corners hollered instructions to stay put. Instead, he wobbled upward at around four seconds to have the grey-shirted referee, Harry Krause, wipe the resin from his gloves. Are you OK? mouthed Krause, an ex-fighter who knows what pain and indignity means to a humbled warrior. The end of a cheerless chapter was now only seconds away. Liston, ominously adjacent, moved in for the kill. Fantastic quote. Liston was ominously adjacent. You know what that means? It means Liston was breathing hard down Patterson's neck, ready to land quickly when it continued. At the end, Patterson was helped back to his corner by his men, and Whiting always gets a post-punch detail. They lowered him onto the stool, wrapped him in white toweling, and stood protectively around the man who once held pride of place as the youngest heavyweight champion the world had ever known. Tonight, he looked like an old, old man. In the aftermath, the Daily Telegraph's Donald Saunders was concerned about Liston's future opponents and the future of the heavyweight division. Liston's biggest worry will not be losing the title, but trying to find opponents who will be good enough to attract customers into arenas and television theatres. He may not be the most likeable of world champions, but there have been, and still are, many people in boxing less deserving of sympathy and support. The British were much kinder to the new champion, that's for sure. A month earlier, Clay had travelled to London to fight Henry Cooper. It was a short journey for Whiting, but he could create lasting, vivid memories at any ringside without the perks of being located somewhere strange and exotic. Whiting here, facing the stark facts. There is nothing like pugilism to demolish precedent and make a prophet look plain daft. Even with only two starters, we frequently pick the wrong one. Yet, on the above assessments, and however much the heart leaps for pale Henry Cooper... The head says tonight's greatest, fastest, most sensational contest, see the handbills, will be won by chocolate-coloured Cassius Clay. Indeed, if the quiet man of Bellingham is on his feet, unmarked, and with none of his English blood on public parade at the end of the ten rounds, I feel he will have earned a substantial bonus on his reputed 20% cut of the Wembley receipts. And then the fight, whiting in full, detailed flow. For 13 minutes and 15 seconds, we had seen and heard pretty nearly everything. High drama, low comedy, farce, blood, brass bands, back chat, cheers, jeers, wild excitement, 
feverish apprehension. Above all, we had seen defiant Henry Cooper thrust a brave left hook from under the crimson mist that covered his eyes to dump the young jackanapes clay in an undignified heap on the floor. A brief four seconds of bloodshot glory to be followed all too soon by disaster and eclipse, exactly as forecast by arrogant young Cassius Clay from Kentucky. Whiting was scrawling out this morning copy in longhand, long before the first stitches were drying across Cooper's mutilated brows. Glory days on both sides of the ropes. Enjoying this tour through the best of boxing history, you can find more transcripts, archive videos, historical images in the boxing section of the Yahoo UK sports site. That's uk.sports.yahoo.com slash boxing. The history of the heavyweight championship is written and recorded by me, Steve Bunce, produced by Yahoo UK, with editing and sound design by Lolita Laguna. 